I'm Eve Lazarus. I'm the author of Cold Case BC, and I host and produce the Cold Case Canada podcast. Last Friday, I did a Facebook Live event through my Facebook page, Cold Case BC. And it was really just to talk a bit about the process of writing the book, Cold Case BC, talk about some of the challenges that I met along the way, and just what you can expect in Season 4 of the Cold Case Canada podcast, which launches on Friday. I don't want to take up a lot of your Friday night. I really just wanted to introduce myself to those of you who are new to the page and tell you a little bit about my work. Many of the chapters in Cold Case BC came straight out of this Facebook page. I started the page in the Cold Case Canada group several years ago. It was just after my book Cold Case Vancouver came out in 2015. I worked closely with many of the families in the book and I really got to care about the victims. After the book was finished, I didn't want to just leave it and walk away. I wanted to create a place where people could go to remember their loved ones and so I could keep their names out there. I also wanted to include unsolved murders outside of Metro Vancouver and I wanted to include missing person cases. When I think of missing children, I immediately think of Michael Dunahy. He was a four-year-old boy who went missing from a playground in Victoria over 30 years ago. His sweet little face is imprinted in my mind and fortunately, stranger abduction is rare. But when it happens, it's just devastating. I didn't include Michael's tragic case in the book or the podcast because there's already a lot out there about him and that's great. But I did include six other missing children who you may not be as familiar with. Brenda Byman was a 12-year-old who went missing from outside Invermere in 1961. I found out about Brenda when her family reached out to me through the Facebook page and asked if I'd write up a post on the day that she went missing. And I was happy to do that. Here we have a case that's over 60 years old and it still continues to impact not just the surviving family and their children, but the entire community. I also found out about 14-year-old Lindsay Nichols on this page. Lindsay was last seen walking down a road outside Comox on Vancouver Island in 1993. I worked very closely with Lindsay's mum, Judy, with her father, Martin, with her sister, Kim, with the RCMP officer who looked after Lindsay's case for several years and also missing persons out of Calgary. There's also Philip Porter. He was a 16-year-old mentally handicapped boy who was kidnapped while walking to his home in Kimberley. This happened in 1969. Philip's father was a big boss of Kaminko, which was the biggest employer in the town. The RCMP officer who told me about this case is long retired, but he was the lead investigator back in 1969, and he's convinced Philip was murdered. Philip's body was never found, and the case still keeps this RCMP officer up at night. There's also the case of three-year-old Casey Rose Bowen. Casey went missing during the middle of the night from her bed in 1989. When I first started researching this case, I thought it was another stranger abduction. 
But when I started to dig deeper into this, I found that it was just so much more complex than that. As in Cold Case Vancouver, I intentionally chose cases that weren't well known and where I felt that the victims had been essentially forgotten by everyone except their family and friends. I wanted to change that and tell the stories of their lives, not just of their murders. When I wrote Cold Case Vancouver eight years ago, I'd hoped that I'd see some of the cases solved, but unfortunately they haven't. The only one that's come close is the Babes in the Woods case. That was the two little skeletons that were found in Stanley Park in 1953. Last February, we learned that they were Derek D. Alton Seven and his brother David Six, who lived with their mother and older sister in Kitsilano. Their identities were found through genetic genealogy, which has also solved several very high-profile cases in the US, including the identity of the Golden State Killer. We seem to be slower to embrace this groundbreaking technology in Canada. This is partly due to cost, but also tighter privacy controls over personal information make using this technique much more difficult up here. I've been obsessed with the Babes in the Woods case since I first saw the display at the Vancouver Police Museum back in the late 1980s. I don't think I realised at the time that I was looking at their actual skulls, but I was intrigued by the story. How did two little boys disappear? and no one reported them missing. I did know that the BC Coroner's Service had only a few of the tiny bone fragments left. They were decades old and had been out in the elements for five years, so they weren't in good shape, and no one held out a lot of hope that they'd be able to get a good enough DNA profile to upload to GEDmatch, that's a law enforcement database in the United States. And then they did. A lab in Thunder Bay managed to get a DNA profile from the larger of the skeletons, and that was put into GEDmatch. At the same time that that was going on, a young woman named Allie was looking for her great uncles. She'd been told that the family was very poor, and the boys had been taken away by social services back in the 1940s. She knew that they would be in their early 80s and could be still alive. Or if they weren't, they may have children or grandchildren that she could trace. So Ali spit into a tube and sent it down to 23andMe. Around the same time, Ali's mother had taken a swab from her mother and she'd sent that off to MyHeritage to find out about their ancestry. This was uploaded into GEDmatch and pretty soon, genetic genealogists had two DNA matches and they had their names. The other case that was solved by genetic genealogy was the 1987 murder of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kullenberg, two kids from Saanich on Vancouver Island, who went to Seattle to pick up some parts for Jay's father's business and spent the night in their van. At some time during the night, they met their killer. It was a truly horrific murder. 18-year-old Tanya was raped and shot in the back of the head, execution style, and 20-year-old Jay was beaten and strangled. Police had semen that was left on Tanya's pants and they were able to get a DNA profile from that. They put the killer's DNA into CODIS, the FBI databank, and also into Canada's equivalent National Databank, which has the DNA of those who have committed major crimes. 
but nothing came up. It wasn't until a few years ago they let Paragon Labs take a crack at it and their genetic genealogist, Cece Moore, found the killer in two hours. It was William Talbot, a Washington State truck driver, who would have been 24 at the time of the murders, and he'd never committed another offence. I was really fortunate to interview Cece for the book and the podcast, because her work is truly fascinating and groundbreaking. Cece says that they're finding an interesting, if not disturbing, trait that many of these killers that are turning up through genetic genealogy are one and done, meaning that they've committed a horrific crime when they were in their early 20s and they've never done anything again. The Babes in the Woods update and Tanya and Jay's case are part of Season 3 of Cold Case Canada. One of the biggest frustrations I had in writing Cold Case BC was that the police won't talk about unsolved cases, and that doesn't matter how old they are. And the cases that I write about are really old. Some date back to the Second World War. That was half a century before DNA came on the scene. And evidence wasn't treated very kindly back then. In fact, right up until the 90s, evidence was often contaminated, lost, unbelievably taken home, and often just thrown out. Many of these very cold cases have not been digitised. In fact, they're sitting in banker boxes, gathering dust in an RCMP or police locker somewhere, and they haven't been looked at in decades. That was certainly the case with Gail Rogers and Barbara LaRoque. Gail and Barbara were go-go dancers. Gail was 26, Barbara 22. They were murdered within months of each other in 1974-75. Gail was beaten to death with a hammer in her Kitsilano apartment, her body dumped in Squamish. Barbara was abducted outside the Vancouver club where she worked, strangled with her own scarf, and her body was dumped in Langley. It took ages for me to find out just who was handling their cases, and it turns out really no one. Gales was with the Vancouver Police Department, and all the evidence, murder weapon, jewellery, any DNA, was thrown out years ago. Her family have never been contacted by the police. Gales' niece told me all of this after we talked, and she went to the police last year. I couldn't get anywhere at all with Barbara's case. Her family tell me that they'd never had any contact with the RCMP. The RCMP say they can't talk about it because it's unsolved. This total lack of transparency is helping no one. So when police say that a murder or missing persons case is never closed, they're not necessarily open either. Without DNA, the only real hope of solving any of these cases is if new information comes forward. And in my opinion, the only way new information will come forward is if the cases stay out there in the public eye. My first episode in this new season four will publish next Friday, and it's about the murder of Gloria Levina Moody. She was a 26-year-old mother of two from Bella Coola, who went by the name Lee. In 1969, her parents took Lee and her younger brother to Williams Lake for what was supposed to be a fun weekend. Lee and her brother wound up at the bar of the branch hotel where the family was staying. 
That was the last place anyone saw her alive. She was brutally murdered and dumped on a cattle trail off the highway. Lee became Ipana's first case of 18 missing and murdered women. Ipana was the RCMP unit formed in 2005 to investigate cases of murdered and missing women and girls along Highway 16, the infamous Highway of Tears, and also Highways 97 and 5. The Ipana cases spanned 37 years. 13 of the 18 are teenagers. 10 of the 18 are Indigenous. What I really love about making the podcasts is that you can actually hear people tell their own stories, and I just think that's so powerful. I was able to connect with Lee's daughter Vanessa over Facebook, and while she was only four when her mother was murdered, she's helped me tell the story in the book and on the podcast of the horrible impact that this has had on her family and the entire community. I also interviewed Steve Pranzel. He was the original investigator with the Ipana, and he has some interesting things to say about this particular investigation. In Season 3, I also did a podcast on 12-year-old Monica Jack's murder. Monica is also one of the 18 Ipana cases. She was abducted while riding her bike outside of Merritt in 1978. Her remains weren't found for another 17 years and her killer was finally convicted in 2018, 40 years after her murder. Monica is one of two of Ipana cases that are is officially solved and closed. I've also written and podcasted about the Jack family, who are not part of the Ipana investigation. The Jacks, a family of four from Prince George, Doreen and Ronnie, both 26, and their two children, Russell 9 and Ryan 4, are still missing. The Jacks thought they were getting well-paid temporary jobs in a logging camp and the entire family disappeared from the Highway of Tears. As far as I can tell, it's the only case of an entire family that is missing in Canada. I work with Doreen Jack's younger sister Marlene on this story and Marlene has been relentless in bringing attention to her family's disappearance and keeping her family in front of the RCMP and Prince George. This is our national tragedy. No one in government or law enforcement seems to be keeping track of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The only organisation that seems to have a handle on the numbers is the Native Women's Association of Canada, and they have a website that's full of information at safepassage.com. They've recorded over 1,300 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls across Canada. And BC is the worst by a large margin. 26%, more than a quarter of all these cases, happened in BC. The next highest is Manitoba, followed by Alberta. So what's happening in Western Canada? It seems that we're a predator's hunting ground, and as far as I can tell, No one is doing much about it. How many unsolved murders are there in British Columbia? No idea. I wish I could tell you. RCMP and police departments don't provide those statistics. And this lack of transparency, frankly, drives me crazy. It seems to be ingrained in the culture of the RCMP.
I wrote about Judge David William Ramsey in Cold Case BC. He worked in Prince George and for 10 years would stand in judgment of Indigenous girls, hear about their horrific backgrounds, and then pay them for sex, often raping and beating them. These girls were as young as 12. No one helped them. Ramsey was eventually charged and died in jail. Charges were also brought up against two RCMP officers for breach of trust. They sexually exploited and abused dozens of girls and were investigated by an internal task force. One of the Mounties was put on paid leave and three years later cleared to go back to work because his lawyer successfully argued that the RCMP had taken too long to bring charges against him. The other officer was reassigned to a different department. Now, 20 years later, one of their cases is in the news again this week. And gosh, they may actually do an external investigation. No wonder there's so little faith in the RCMP, particularly from people that live in the north. The Vancouver Police Department doesn't need to pat itself on the back either. They also have the same lack of transparency when it comes to murdered and missing people. Both forces hide behind media departments and so-called freedom of information requests, which in reality often take several months before they're inevitably turned down. A recent example of this lack of transparency is the case of 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman, who was last seen in Vancouver on September 6, 2020. That night, Chelsea went out for dinner with her sister, attended a party and vanished. Her remains were found by a contractor in April 2022 at an unoccupied property in Shaughnessy. Two weeks later, the Vancouver Police Department held a media conference. They said that Chelsea had most likely died soon after she went missing and the cause of death was unknown. This is a quote from the sergeant. We do not believe that Chelsea was murdered. We don't believe her death was caused by another person. The exact cause of death may never be known. And at this point, it's considered to be undetermined. The impression he left was missing person found, case closed. But it was far from closed from Chelsea's family and friends. How they wanted to know, could the VPD announce that Chelsea had not been murdered if they didn't know how she died, how she arrived at the property, or who she was with? At the time that I wrote this in Cold Case BC, the family was still searching for answers. And likely because of this public scrutiny, the VPD's official line had changed to the investigation remains active. I'm very much looking forward to Season 4 of Cold Case Canada. I'll be doing 10 episodes. They'll run every second Friday and they'll include cases from the book, Missing People, Unsolved Murders and some cases that were solved after a really long time. I'll also be throwing in a few surprises cases that I'm working on now that haven't been written about, by me anyway, and I haven't seen much about them in the media. I hope you can join me. I'm also beyond thrilled to tell you that Cold Case BC has been on the BC bestsellers list for the past 18 weeks, and the last 16, it's held the number one spot. That's just astounding to me, and I'm just so grateful to all of you who've bought a book, gifted a book, or just borrowed one. If you haven't got a copy and want one, they should be readily available in all independent bookstores. 
through Indigo and Amazon, and you can also buy them at many of Save-On food stores, London Drugs, and on the BC ferries. Cold Case BC will be released in the United States in May, but you can order now through my publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press. I'll put all of this in my show notes, and if you'd like more information, please see my website, evelazarus.com, or join us on the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.